It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Nuclear fusion. Could this be the pot of gold waiting at the end of the rainbow to provide energy which is cheap, clean, and inexhaustible? For years, it sounded like science fiction. Scientists plan to use this 23,000-tonne reactor to create a tiny star here on Earth that's then used to power the world. As remarkable as that sounds, it looks like thermonuclear fusion is finally on the way. And it could solve some of our biggest problems. Get it right, and it holds out the potential for producing almost unlimited supplies of energy pretty much forever. Fusion has long been the holy grail for nuclear science, because unlike fission, which drives our current nuclear power stations, it produces clean, efficient, almost limitless energy. If scientists can get it to work. Now, if that sounds like a really big deal to you, it's because it is. So how does it work? How close are we to being able to use it? And could it save the world? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm Manveen Rana. Today, thermonuclear fusion, a star on Earth to power the world. The breakthrough came at three minutes past one on a Monday in the morning in December at a lab about an hour away from San Francisco. That's Constance Kampfner a Times reporter who's been tracking the recent advances in nuclear fusion. And this was the first time that a fusion experiment managed to generate more energy than it consumed. It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory, anywhere in the world, right? As the president might say, I do think he probably did say this is a BFD. You don't need to speak scientist to know that means it's a pretty big deal. It was the proof the world needed that nuclear fusion could create more energy than it took to make the process work. So what exactly happened in that laboratory 
in California. So 2.05 megajoules went in and 3.15 megajoules came out. To put that into perspective, before we all get too excited, it was about enough energy to boil a few kettles. But when news came out that the uh, US National Ignition Facility had managed this, people did get really excited because researchers there had been trying to prove for years this core concept that they could produce a net energy gain, as it's known. This was roughly their 100th attempt. They'd started in 2012 and they'd been doing one experiment every two weeks since then and it was greeted as a huge accomplishment. Just tell us a bit about this place. What is it that they were intending to find? They're essentially intending to replicate the process that takes place at the heart of the sun. And that's what we call fusion in order to uh, achieve the small goal of generating near limitless, pretty much clean power that could power the earth for generations to come. So this facility is set up to prove that you can have net gain. Um, There are Skeptics. So, so on on the one hand, the people say we've been brought closer to that with this experiment that nuclear fusion is kind of within touching distance now in a way that it wasn't before. But there are skeptics. People point out, you know, one that it's important not to confuse having kind of reached net energy gain in the reaction itself with how much energy was actually used to create the conditions for the experiment. So. For this experiment, scientists fired 192 lasers at a tiny peppercorn-sized hydrogen capsule, trying to make it kind of collapse in on itself to create a fusion reaction. But those lasers were only about 1% efficient. So yes, once fired, they used less energy than they created. But to create the energy to power those is a very kind of different thing. The other problem is that this was only one hydrogen capsule one time. You know, it was a tiny blaze. It lasted less than a billionth of a second. And if you want to scale that up, you'd need a near endless supply of these hydrogen capsules that you were hitting many times a minute, which is a bit of a logistical nightmare. So this is a huge breakthrough. The news goes around the world. It's making headlines. Does this mean we're we're likely to get a whole new energy source, a clean, limitless energy source anytime soon? Short answer, probably not. But, you know, we are a little bit closer. I mean, fusion research has been going on since the 1950s. And until now, although, you know, scientists have theorised that net energy gain was possible, no one had actually achieved it. So this is a huge psychological milestone, if nothing else, and and hugely reassuring for all the other fusion experiments taking place across the world. But for reasons explained earlier, it's, it's hard to imagine this being scaled up to kind of actually heat your home anytime soon. Nuclear fusion has always been the holy grail. You know, we've heard about scientists looking into this for years, hoping this would be the way we solved all of our energy problems. Tell us a bit about some of the research that's been taking place and where in the world it's happening. It's happening all over the world, really. There's quite a few state-run projects like the one um, in America, the National Ignition Facility, or JET, short for the Joint European Taurus. And that's actually based in Oxfordshire. And last year, that broke the world record for uh, the amount of energy produced in a sustained fusion reaction. So that's something which is more likely to be an energy source rather than a one-off spark. Exactly. 
there's also in recent years been a profusion of private projects, lots of money coming in from the private sector and some really quite innovative ways of trying to create fusion. So there's another group of scientists also near Oxford who are trying to achieve nuclear fusion using a 22 metre long gun and a load of gunpowder. You've been to visit one of these facilities. Tell us a bit about that. I went to visit ESAP, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. It looks like a huge building site, to be honest with you. Large warehouses, very kind of glossy offices, and you have to drive around it. It's that big. So this site is so huge, we've got to drive to get anywhere. We call it the ESAP platform, the work site, which is 42 hectares. We've got this giant construction site and then just mountains. It's still under construction, but when it's complete, it will be the world's biggest fusion reactor. And it's held in a giant kind of UN-like complex, uh, an hour north of Marseille, in the south of France, in an idyllic bit of the French countryside with views over the southern French Alps. It's sad that you don't connect your camera to your microphone. I know. <laughs> it's quite spectacular today with the dark clouds and the bright sunshine. Sounds like a tough gig. <laughs> yeah. yeah, awful, awful time we had of it. Um, but no, you know, although it's in France, you, you really wouldn't actually know it once you're inside. ITER is a consortium of 35 countries. The EU, Britain, China, America, Russia, Japan, South Korea. I mean, you walk along a corridor and you just hear people speaking languages from across the world. I don't think I've ever heard anything like it. And tell us about some of the people you met there. I met Sabina Griffith, who is a uh, German Brit on the communication side of things. They were just getting ready to launch the ITER project and, and they said, well, Sabina, um, we need uh, people in the communications team, you know, are you interested? And I said, well, sorry, but what is fusion? And I was one week on the job when all the newly appointed directors from the ITER project came to Garching to present themselves, you know, and it was my honor and duty to interview them. And I mean, I was really sweating blood, but it went well, apparently. So they asked me if I wanted to move to France. So here I am. And we are still here after 16 crazy years. The first years were super exciting. We worked out of porter cabins in the woods with wild boars uh, running through. And it's unique to be part of this mission because it's a very important mission. We are not constructing cars here. This is something that could be a real game changer. And then Alberto Luarte, who is from Spain, and he is the head of the science division. I am in the department of what is called science, controls and operations. So we are responsible for the operation of the device once it is built and for its scientific exploitation. He's been working on fusion for his entire life. And you probably won't meet someone who's quite as passionate about it as he is. Oh, it is a very interesting place to work. It's like driving a Formula One. It is something great. <laughs> it is actually quite a lot of fun to program. We are the ones that would like to see fusion tomorrow because this is the fun part of, of it. Take us back a step and just sort of explain again, because, you know, nuclear fusion... It's something that's always been in the background. People have always talked about it being a great hope for the future, but we very rarely know what it means. What exactly is fusion? All fusion experiments are attempting to harness 
what powers the sun. And it's the opposite of the kind of nuclear energy we currently use in our power stations, nuclear fission. So if you imagine fission splits heavy atoms in two and that releases energy. And as we know, a lot of nuclear waste is very difficult to store. Mm. Fusion does what it says on the tin, really. It fuses together two smaller atoms to create a larger one, which has to be done under very hot temperatures and under lots of pressure. So in the sun, hydrogen atoms collide. They fuse together to produce helium. And in doing so, they released vast amounts of energy. You can produce about four times roughly more energy using fusion than you can using fission. It's a lot more efficient. It's a lot safer. It does produce some small quantities of radioactive waste, but it's easy to clean up. It has a very short half-life. And crucially, you can't get a runaway chain reaction. You can't get a, a Chernobyl situation. There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged. Mild nuclear radiation had already reached beyond the Soviet borders to Scandinavia. You can switch off the machine and the reaction stops. It's as simple as that. So there are broadly two camps in the nuclear fusion world. So on the one hand, there are projects like the one in the US, and they use lasers to, to attempt to create a series of kind of small, instantaneous fusion reactions. And then there are projects like ITER that most people would say are our best hope of actually scaling this up. And instead of creating lots of small and short nuclear reactions, ITER and similar projects work to create a long, sustained reaction. And they do that using giant TARDIS-like machines called tokamaks, which I think we'll get to in a minute. Constance, why is it so much cleaner than other energy sources? So it doesn't release any CO2 or any other greenhouse gases. It does produce helium, which is an inert gas, and uh, tritium, which is radioactive, but which is only used in small quantities and which crucially has a short half-life. So it isn't really a problem to clean up. And why would it be almost limitless? It uses hydrogen atoms and hydrogen is abundant on, on planet Earth. It's everywhere. So... There is kind of no scarcity when it comes to the raw materials that, that we need to use for nuclear fusion. And I suppose no, no particular country has a, a monopoly on it. It's in the air. It's in the air. Coming up, how today's experiments emerged from a Cold War meeting. But first... Hi, I'm George Abuffnot, the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insights Investigations team. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's go back to the facility you visited. Tell us a bit about how it came about. How did you end up with this idyllic little nuclear fusion village in in the Alps. I don't know if that's how the actual villagers down the road feel about it. But um, <laughs> so essentially, Ita is a, is a child of the Cold War. So back in November in 1985, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev met for the first time. And that was at the Geneva Superpower Summit. The moment is at hand. President Reagan now is at a lakeside mansion about eight miles north of Geneva. And it is there that the president will meet this morning with Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union. And they couldn't really agree on very much during the course of that summit. They ended up kind of signing a pretty woolly agreement. The bold and younger leader of the Soviet Communist Party shaking hands with Ronald Wilson Reagan. Mikhail Gorbachev appears to be talking to him in English, as he is capable of doing. But one thing they did come together on was fusion. So they decided to collaborate and create an international effort to develop fusion energy for what they called the benefit of mankind. And Mm. it was pretty revolutionary because up till then, countries had sort of been working on this in their own corner, not necessarily sharing their findings, not linking up. So progress had been slower than it needed to be. And also, I suppose, every time America and Russia talked about things nuclear up until then, they'd been in a very different context. Yeah, it was a touchy subject, to say the least. (laughs) So this ends up becoming a very collaborative project. I mean, tell us a bit about that. How does it work now after Russia has invaded Ukraine? Do you find some of those tensions coming out in the way they, they work? I mean, the short answer is not really. Which is surprising, given that when Russia did launch its full-scale invasion of Ukraine back in February 2022, Europe and the rest of the West severed a lot of uh, their research ties with Russia. Any planned mission involving the Russian space agency Roscosmos is now in question. Without Russia, we may only have two years of operation of the International Space Station left, potentially dooming NASA's future plans. ITRA is one of a handful of remaining partnerships, and there are still dozens of Russian staff working on site. You know, when you ask people there what that's like, they say that there have been some tensions, but that generally people are rubbing along. And you Don't know, mention the war. Basically, yeah. And I suppose everyone's very aware of the fact that had Russia been chucked out or, or pulled out, that the whole thing could have been halted in its tracks. I mean, Russia is supplying some pretty key components. And, you know, I think there's a general feeling that this is a project that was born in a time of deep tension between Russia and the West. And that despite that, there's this legacy of kind of collaboration of sort of 
rising above any kind of political tensions of the moment and looking towards the long term. I mean, it's kind of odd to see that Russia is so invested in in seeing this form of energy come online so soon. When we are in the middle of an energy crisis sparked by war, takes away some of their like the cards they're holding. In the short term, maybe yes, but Russia's oil, like all other oil deposits, is limited. And it's better for them to be in on the future form of energy production than outside. There still will be an energy market, commodities to be traded, knowledge uh, to be shared and traded and, and potentially sold. So they need in on this as much as we kind of need them being part of it. With this project... It does seem to have made real progress in the last few months. Where are they at? They're still building the tokamak. A tokamak is the most advanced of current fusion machine designs. In order to get fusion reactions going, you need to keep your fuel hot enough and dense enough. And you need to keep it like that for long enough for fusion reactions to occur. It's a donut-shaped vacuum created using giant magnets and it will hold in place something called a plasma which is a charged kind of mess of hydrogen atoms that have been heated to 150 million degrees celsius that's 10 times the heat in the center of the sun so we are looking at a giant piece of metal it's a very special metal it's eater grade steel and this is part of the vacuum chamber where the fusion reaction will take place so this is the first barrier the containment barrier for the plasma this separates the hot and the cold world the hot world will be inside the vacuum vessel and then outside we have the giant magnets and the magnets operate at minus 274 degrees Celsius. Both worlds are only a few meters apart. So it's hotter than in the core of the sun inside and outside it's colder than on the dark side of the moon. It was supposed to be completed in 2025. They've actually pretty recently had some kind of manufacturing issues. So it's looking like that's no longer going to be realistic. There are also some delays caused by the war. So they're still building the tokamak. It looks like a TARDIS, honestly. The kid in me was very excited when we stepped inside the huge chamber that contains it. Okay, so we're now going into the belly of the beast. Yes. Layers and layers of this white tent material to go through. So this is the fusion church. For more than 60 years, fusion machine has been built, and this is by far the most sophisticated ever. They have made some giant kind of leaps forward in kind of starting to put all of this together. I think for the people who've been working on it for kind of decades, that's quite emotional to see these giant magnets being lowered into this sort of cavernous room where the tokamak is being held. The world's largest and most powerful magnet, the central solenoid, it is being assembled outside the tokamak pit here. It comes in it's six more. almost quasi-religious experience for some of them to sort of actually see it come together. When we lifted the, the full sector here with the vacuum vessel and the magnets, it took almost five days. And even for the hardcore people, you know, that never show emotions, I saw some very liquid eyes that day. So. That does sound amazing. And, and just explain to us... What a difference this will make. You know, when this tokamak is up and running, if it's 2025, 2026, what will that be able to do? So the important thing to remember is that this is just a proof of concept. So what they're hoping to be able to prove is similar to what 
scientists in America just proved, which is that they can create net energy gain using fusion. It will tell us, yes or no, we can harness fusion energy, the energy that powers the sun and the stars. We can harness this here on Earth. That we have Originally, the deadline for that was about 2035, probably be pushed back as well. And once they can prove that and they can prove that they can do it in a sustained reaction, so that's the key difference here is that they can keep that reaction running for maybe hours as opposed to kind of split seconds like we saw in America. Mm. Once they can prove that, then that is the blueprint for potential future power stations. But it will tell us that we have the knowledge, the technologies, the materials to take fusion to a real commercial scale and to go ahead and to build power plants. They're not going to be able to plug this into the grid once it's ready and say, great, now we have unlimited power. This is very much an experiment that will go on and inform future infrastructure projects. Basically, if you are in the, you think like a planes, we, we are going to demonstrate that the planes fly. We are not going to build a, an Airbus 340. So it'll be after 2035, probably, that we can even start to think about scaling it up or what might come next. So it's still quite a long way away. Absolutely. So, yeah, as I said, long-term solution, but not a short-term solution in the fight against climate change. This is one of our biggest problems, moral-wise, that we cannot contribute anything right now to the climate crisis. So we say, well, when uh, we really have to turn off the fossil fuels, we hope that fusion is ready to take over a large part of, of the share. There has been talk about nuclear fusion for an awfully long time and quite often you know you you end up with these breakthrough moments and then not much happens I mean is there a danger that some of this is a false dawn I don't think there's a danger that you know it's a false dawn in that this is definitely a step forward I'm convinced it will work I don't see any reason unless we have some major technical failure I don't have any doubt that ITER will produce hundreds of megawatts of fusion energy the question is how big of a step and how long will this take? What remains open is, can we produce it with this multiplication factor that we want? And can we sustain this, you know, for very long periods? And crucially, could this end up diverting attention away from other projects, from other innovative solutions to the energy crisis, other forms of renewable energy that might benefit from the same level of attention and excitement as fusion and actually might get us to a kind of safer place faster. If this is potentially, though, an amazing source of energy that's clean, it's limitless, um, efficient, should we just be throwing everything at, at speeding up these experiments, trying to bring, trying to bring the, the date forward when it can actually go online? It is tempting to think that way. There is so much frustration and excitement mixed together and so much potential. The problem is maybe that would have worked if it happened a few decades ago. I mean, that's what Alberto Luarte, the the head of science, told me. If we had kept the, the effort that was put in the 80s to develop fusion further, we would have been 20 years earlier. He said that what's really frustrating as someone who works in the field is that outside of these moments where there's a kind of energy crisis or a big breakthrough, people sort of forget about fusion. We had a crisis of energy in the 70s with oil crisis that led to people to worry about energy. This was the birth of the largest fusion experiment presently existing, which is the one at JET in the UK. 
And then after that, energy became something which is important, but there didn't didn't seem to be any urgency. And I think this has impacted the development of fusion. Maybe policymakers lose interest, deprioritize it. There have been moments where ITER's future has been really threatened. And then when people get excited about it again, they say, great, well, let's, let's make it happen. Now the sense of urgency has come back because of the global climate changes and also because we have realized that the same mistake that was done in the 70s was done again at the end of the 20th century by relying on a specific provider of fuel. They say, let's make it happen quickly, let's throw money at it. And actually, it's it's a kind of a long-term investment that you need. You cannot kind of at this stage say, well, if we increase funding by however many billion, we'll get there a year or two or three faster. Because at this stage, it is all about precision. You saw the size of the components. All these things, these processes have to be done with greatest care. If you make mistakes during the production process the machine will fail, it will not work, and then we'll have to disassemble everything. So now is the time where we have to go slowly. You can't speed that up. It's sort of like saying if you bet more money on a horse, it will go faster. It's the training that matters. Yeah. I'm quite struck by your description of how ETA started as this great sort of form of collaboration at the end of the Cold War, if we are making sudden strides in how this technology is working out, I mean, this could end up being one of the greatest legacies that comes out of the end of the Cold War. Absolutely, it would be. And, and there are people who kind of say that it would, without hyperbole, be the dawn of a new era. If this works, the way we think about energy production will change dramatically. An era where we're not fighting over energy is kind of unfathomable at this stage. The crisis that we have now with Ukraine and the Russian gas, because you are dependent on a specific source, will disappear. One of the analogies that was used by Abel Toluate when he was talking to me was that we used to fight over salt in order to preserve our food before we had refrigerators. In the Middle Ages, the only way to preserve food was to use salt and spices. And this led to wars, this led to the discovery of America. So the world was desperate to find ways in which you had something that was essential to keep your food reserve for the winter. And then the refrigerator comes along and, and nobody goes to war over a salt mine anymore. And that, yes, we will go to war over other things, whether that's water or, or any of the other kind of resources that, that could prove finite. But that wars over energy, or at least wars over energy in the form that we know them, where you have oil-rich countries calling the shots, that that power dynamic is is massively going to shift. I think this will change the world. For instance, this type of situation we have uh, where um, uh, energy sources are concentrated in specific countries and lead to political instabilities, that will just disappear. It's a nice world. Visiting this site and sort of seeing the progress that's been made, did it make you feel hopeful about the future? When you speak to people who are kind of so incredibly invested in the work they do day in, day out, you can't help but get that kind of tingle of excitement. We are developing 
scientific research that has a practical consequence for humankind and potentially can change the way the world history will go. Research is about daring and trying. So we dare to build this machine and to build a little sun on Earth to provide us with clean energy for almost free. Especially right now when people are kind of having to use warm banks to, to stay warm over winter and we're in the 21st century and you think, how have we got to this stage of kind of technological advancement and yet some of the bread and butter issues like just heating your home seem kind of so difficult and so unachievable. So when you kind of hear about this potential utopian future, I think it's it's hard not to feel excited. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Constance Kampfner, reporter at The Times. You can find all of Constance's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.